Hi, my name is Maddie. The Old Testament reading is found in Psalm 27, verses 4 and 7 through 8. One thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in, and to inquire in his temple. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Carly. The New Testament reading is found in Ephesians verses, verse one, chapter 1, verses 17 through 19. I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, will give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation that makes God known to you. I pray that the eyes of your heart will have enough light to see what is the hope of God's call, what is the richness of God's glorious inheritance among believers, and what is the overwhelming greatness of God's power that is working among us believers. This power is conferred by the energy of God's powerful strength. The word of the Lord. My name is Etienne. Thank you for standing for the gospel reading found in Matthew 22, verses 37 through 40. And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it, that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. This is the gospel of our Lord. Praise be to our Lord Christ. Remain standing as we pray. Jesus, we thank you for your word to us, and we ask that by your spirit you would open up our eyes and our ears and our hearts to be able to see and hear and believe in you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we're beginning a new series today called This Functional Family. Uh, obviously, a little bit of a play on how it sounds in our ears. Uh, this functional family, and by the word family, we mean the church, the people of God. One of the New Testament's favorite metaphors for a congregation is the household of faith, the family. And maybe for some of you, this is really good news because it's easy to relate to. You like your family. You happen to have good memories growing up. And so you think, oh, cool, church is like family. I get it. But probably for many of you, maybe more of you, that might be a, a troubling metaphor because you're thinking, I hated my family. We were a dysfunctional family. And so I don't know how to be any other kind of family. In fact, I'd, I'd rather you compare church to anything else other than family. One of the things that we're going to do as we go through this series is to examine parts of how our family of origin shapes us and how it, it, it taught us to sort of inhabit this world and informed us in the way that we relate to others. And we're going to invite the Lord to, make us re to help us wrestle with this because it's a way to understand uh, even our own relationships. So we'll talk about friendships. We'll talk about in every, in every week of this series, we'll talk about a, a bunch of different relationships. In fact, the primary lens we're going to use for this series is not stages of life, but rather emotions. Now, 
Emotions, when you think about emotions, I, I don't know what, what comes to mind. Uh, some of you might think, oh no, here we go. Church is going all psychobabble here, and we're going to get all touchy-feely and talk about emotions. Like, why do we have to talk about my feelings? And others of you kind of think, well, well, emotions, I mean, basically isn't the main point, is just to figure out how to get our, keep our emotions in check, because the ultimate goal for a Christian, or maybe for a human, is to be like Dr. Spock, supremely run by logic, and all that matters is being logical and rational, and emotions, that's just, that's, that's the result of our fallen nature. And we sort of have this impression that emotions are a lesser part of who we are. And so if we're going to talk about relationships, just give me some tips, some techniques, and I will use the strength of my mind and of my logic to make them work. And then that's all I need. Really, all I need is some pragmatic help with relationships. I don't actually need to be healed in my relationships. And so we're tempted that the Christian response to our uh, struggle in friendships and, and, and relationships and marriage and all of this stuff is to just give us some, either some practical tips or to give us a bunch of rules. Just here are the rules for how to behave. Looking at this series through the lens of emotions actually allows us to take this much deeper. You know, one of the interesting things is Christianity proposes to be all about a relationship with God. That at its heart, Christianity is not, is not, does not describe itself as a set of beliefs that you must just sort of assent to with your mind and then check the boxes. Great. No, the, the language is the language of a love story. And if there is going to be relationship, then that means that we have to talk about emotions. Because in any relationship, a person must allow themselves to be moved by the other person in the relationship. C.S. Lewis makes this great point in his little book, Reflections on the Psalms. He, you know, Lewis was a scholar of medieval literature, of ancient mythology. And Lewis says, look, in a lot of the ancient mythology, you have the actions of the gods that sort of happen up here. And then it spills over into the affairs of humanity. In other words, the gods have all of their passions and wars and fights and all this stuff. And oh my gosh, that's why earthquakes happen on, in, you know, in, in the world. And Lewis says, isn't it interesting that in the Psalms, the Hebrew people thought of it differently. They said, the humans have all of their activity and wars and passions and all of this stuff. And God is moved by them. In other words, God in the, in the Hebrew imagination is not a Greek stoic being that is unmoved. Rather, God is the first and most deeply moved being. Not the unmoved mover, but rather the most moved mover. The one who looks at our pain and our sorrow and our joy and our struggle and says, Oh, I'm deeply moved by this. In fact, The Bible goes so far as to say that humans are made in the image of God. And to be made in the image of God then means that we too can reflect all of these emotions. Isn't it interesting that the scripture doesn't hide emotions from us, even the emotions of God? If it it wanted to present to us a a sort of a, a cosmic computer up in the sky that ran the universe by code, it would have done that. But instead, we see a God who's angry, who's joyful, who's delighting, who's sorrowful, a God who is full of emotion. Then to be in the image of God is to also have the full spectrum of emotion. 
So when we see Jesus, Jesus the Son of God, Jesus who is both fully God and truly and fully human, the only truly human being the world has ever seen is Jesus. And Jesus shows us. I, you know, I, I, it really bothers me when preachers say, Jesus, you know, when he wept at Lazarus' death, Jesus was just kind of doing a wink-wink a to kind of show us, like, I get you, man. You know, I'm not really sad. But I, because it misses it. The doctrine of the incarnation tells us that Jesus was both fully God and fully human. And even though it's a mystery, it's a mystery we affirm and confess. And what that means is when Jesus cried, he actually was sad. And when Jesus laughed, he actually was happy. And when Jesus was mad, he was actually mad. He was not putting on a show for us. That to be fully human is to live in this way. The Bible talks about emotions quite a bit. Anger, for example, is mentioned 269 times in the Bible. Anger. Sadness or sorrow is mentioned 51 times in the Bible. Fear is mentioned 437 times, the most referenced emotion in scriptures, fear. We'll talk about that next week. Happiness is referenced 10 times in scripture. I mean, if you ever thought, oh, this Christian thing is only for happy people, you haven't read the Bible. (laughs) There's a lot of fear and anger and sadness and a little bit of happiness. (laughs) Because God gets the human story. God gets this journey. And so Jesus, even there there are times when Jesus seems to be commanding us about our emotions. He says, fear not. Or he says, don't let your heart be troubled. And so the Bible talks to us about emotions as if it's something that we are able to somehow guide. But how do we do this? How can emotions, in week one today, how can emotions be a pathway to spiritual formation? How does this all work? Well, to, 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 to tackle this subject, we're going to rely a little bit on the science of emotions. Now, I just want you to know, I think you know this about me, but I don't believe that faith and science are contrary to one another. I believe that faith and science answer different and sometimes overlapping questions. And I think they can help. I think science can tell us a lot about how emotions work. And the scripture can tell us how to become whole. So they answer complementary, sometimes overlapping, but complementary questions. They're not contradictions, okay? So a lot of this for me, this research today, comes from the movie Inside Out. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) You're like, oh my gosh, what? (laughs) Just check it if you're still with me. A lot of this comes from a psychologist named Paul Ekman. Now, part of my doctorate is in hope and how hope theologically and all of that is expressed in the context of congregational worship. Well, part of my literature reading had to be to explore hope from a psychological perspective, and part of that meant that I read a lot about emotions. And Paul Ekman's name keeps coming up, but for good reason, because the the APA, the American Psychological Association, considers Ekman one of the most influential psychologists of the 20th century because of his work on emotions. And actually, guys, Ekman was the scientist consultant for the movie Inside Out. So there you go. He was also the guy that they consulted for that TV show that Fox used to run a couple years ago called Lie to Me all about how we show and betray emotions on our face. And part of the reason for this was because Ekman set out 40, 50 years ago to prove that emotions are just culturally conditioned responses. Instead, what he discovered is that they have universal patterns. And so we're going to rely on some of Ekman's stuff here to help us understand this. First of all, what is 
emotion. What is emotion? Emotions, first of all, are, they are a pre-reflective. They're, some, they're pre-reflective. We're going to fill out a whole sentence here. Pre-reflective means that it happens so quickly, we don't see something, process it, and then say, and then tell ourselves, get mad. Okay, I'm going to get mad. Usually we see it processes so quickly that it almost bypasses our, our awareness, and we get mad. And then after the fact, we have to say, now, why did I get mad? Right? Okay, so they're pre-reflective, but secondly, they're an appraisal of the world. They're an assessment of the world. Your emotions are a radar. They're a gauge. They help you kind of read the world around you, read your environment, make sense of your environment. And thirdly, it's related, it's based on something that we care about. Emotions are a pre-reflective appraisal of the world based on something we care about. It could be a perceived thing or it could be a, a real thing. We might be wrong in our perception. We might be right in our perception. But whenever we see something that affects something we care about, an emotion springs up. In fact, it's a way of telling us, aha, I see it. A friend of mine, Adam Pelser, who's a professor at the Air Force Academy, his PhD was all about emotions and virtue. He's going to give one of the sermons here in a couple of weeks. Adam likes to call this, emotions are the eyes of our heart, kind of borrowing that phrase that St. Paul uses in Ephesians, the eyes of our heart. It's how our heart sees the world and perceives the world. So when you're sad, it's, you're, you're, you're telling, it's something is telling you, look, I'm losing something. I, there, there's a loss I'm experiencing. I'm perceiving the world right now as a loss. There's a loss that I'm perceiving in the world. Emotions are like eyes. The eyes of our heart. The trouble is, for all of us who believe that not only are we made in the image of God, but that somehow sin has worked like an infection, maybe, maybe we wouldn't say we're, we're like incapable of good, but maybe we'd say that at the very least, somehow sin has impaired us. What does sin do to our emotions and therefore to our relationships? Another Paul, not Paul Ekman, but St. Paul. <laughs> wrote a book called Galatians. And I like Eugene Peterson's message paraphrase of Galatians 5 because Peterson really makes this come alive. Listen to this. My counsel is this. Live freely, animated, motivated by God's spirit. Then you won't feed the compulsions of selfishness. These two ways of life are antithetical. So that you cannot live at times one way and at times another way according to how you feel on any given day. Paul's saying, look, there are two ways to handle this. There's two ways to go about the, the, the passions and concerns and relationships in your life. There's two ways to navigate this. And he says, why don't you choose to be led by the Spirit and so escape the erratic compulsions of a law-dominated existence? I want to pause right here. The, the best that psychology can help us see is how this works. Give us some tips. Give us some techniques. But in the end, we're going to make up our own law. We're going to make up our own law. These are the rules. Don't get mad about this. Calm down about this. Be sure to say this. A whole bunch of... And the best we can do is give us a new law. Sure, you may not be under the Old Testament law, but you've just given yourself a new kind of law. And Paul says, the law, any kind of law, is never enough to actually give you the overhaul that you really need. 
It can't help you escape the erratic compulsions of a law-dominated existence. It is obvious what kind of life develops out of trying to get your own way all the time. Now, this is some pretty strong language, so buckle your seatbelts, folks. St. Paul goes on to say, when you live, when your emotions are out of alignment, when your passions and hearts are, when you have a self-directed life, this is the mess it creates. Repetitive, loveless, cheap sex. A stinking accumulation of mental and emotional garbage. Frenzied and joyless grabs for happiness. What a phrase. Look around at the world on Monday mornings. Is it, does it look like a frenzied and joyless grab? Trinket gods, magic show religion, paranoid loneliness, cutthroat competition, all consuming yet never satisfied wants. That's not like our day, right? This is unique to Paul, right? A brutal temper, an impotence to love or be loved. There's a crisis of love, no matter how much we talk about, I just want to be loved, I just want to love. There's a crisis where we feel ourselves incapable of loving the way we actually long to be loved. Divided homes and divided lives, small-minded and lopsided pursuits, the vicious habit of depersonalizing everyone into a rival. What a phrase. In our divided country, you think there's any depersonalizing of people into a rival? No, no, that doesn't happen. Uncontrolled and uncontrollable addictions, ugly parodies of community. I could go on, Paul says. Parodies of community, that's one I want to reflect on longer. The artificial sense of saying, oh, yeah, we're all together. We're all just, we're neighbors, we're community. And Paul's saying, really? Or is there an ugly parody of this going on? Because as long as you try to make up your own rules for relationships and social functions, as long as you've got this law in your head, it's never going to change the mess that's in here. And eventually that selfishness is a monster that will create messes out there. If we were to sum it up in one sentence, we'd say this, sin distorts our emotions and destroys our relationships. Sin, the self-directedness, the gravitational pull of our own selfish desires distorts our emotions and destroys our relationships. But Paul has good news. What happens when we live God's way, he says. He brings gifts into our lives, much the same way that fruit appears in an orchard, things like affection for others, exuberance about life, serenity, We develop a willingness to stick with things, a sense of compassion in the heart, and a conviction that a basic holiness permeates things and people. We find ourselves involved in loyal commitments, not needing to force our way in life, able to marshal and direct our energies wisely. And then he adds, legalism is helpless in bringing this about. It only gets in the way. He shows us what we want. You know what the goal is? The goal is to have this affection for others. The goal is to have a rightly ordered heart and life and passion in and so that our emotions are rightly expressing it. And he says, but you know what? Legalism is useless to bring that about. Make up all the rules you want, whether rules from, from uh, your, your family of origin, rules from even rules that you think you're getting from the Bible. Wherever you get these rules, pure Rule following is not going to solve the issue. So you could say, well, who cares? 
Just let it out. Just be whoever you are. Say whatever you feel. Paul's like, yeah, that leads to a mess too. The only answer, he says, is for the Spirit of God. Galatians, the whole book of Galatians is Paul saying, the only power strong enough to renovate your life is the Holy Spirit. That's what Galatians is all about, especially Galatians 5. So if sin distorts us, the Spirit restores us to the image of God and makes us fully human. This is a phrase I want to invite you to reflect on over the next several weeks. How is the Holy Spirit restoring you to the image of God and making you fully human? Wouldn't it be amazing if we reclaimed the phrase, I'm only human? Oh, man, I'm so, well, you know, I'm only human. I love it. C.S. Lewis actually makes this point. He says, actually, you're subhuman. (laughs) The only fully human one is Jesus, but he, by his spirit, he's making us fully human. Part of the spirit's work is a renovation of the heart, realigning us. So how does this happen? Let's get into this a little bit more it, practically, a little bit more with some practices. How does it work? How can emotions be a pathway to spiritual formation? Are you ready? Two things. Just two things today. Number one, emotions must be rightly ordered. Emotions must be rightly ordered. We've got to find, we we have to let the Holy Spirit help us figure out what's going on. Usually when people say, oh, 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 he's just so emotional, or she's just so, usually what they mean is they are showing emotion, but in the wrong intensity. They've invested too much care about that. Which is why we have that old English proverb, don't cry over spilt milk. Like, spilt milk is bad, but it's not that bad. Don't cry about it, okay? Like, why do you care so much about spilt milk, right? So, so here's the practice that, that, that we can invite the Holy Spirit into. Trace your emotions backward to reveal your passions. Trace your emotions backward. To, this, is what, this is what I mean by this. When you find that an emotion arises, say, okay, wait a minute. Why am I so bothered by this? Trace this backwards. What have I over-invested in? Maybe you, you see someone's post on Facebook or something, and it just makes you all angry. And you're like, I don't know, I'm so angry. Like, Dude, why are you so angry? It's just a vacation picture. <laughs> and you're like, I know, but how can they be posting another picture of them at the beach? It's like, dude, it's there. Like, why, why, why is this? And you say, Lord, what is going on with me? Like, why am I so, why am I so triggered by that? And you trace that anger backwards, and you realize you feel there's been an injustice because anger is usually triggered by a sense of injustice. And you feel that you know what? I didn't get the vacation I wanted this year. I, I went to, um, I, I went somewhere else this year. I, you know, I, I couldn't go there this year. So I have this anger about this. And you trace it backwards and say, well, maybe you've invested too much care into this area of your life. Because an emotion will always reveal a deeper care, a deeper passion. The great St. Augustine in the 400s wrote an, wrote an epic book called The Confessions. And Confessions, even from a pure literary standpoint, Confessions is a marvel because there was never a book like this so autobiographical but also written like prayers, not purely in the, not in the first person in, in the sense of, of self-described, but, but prayers to God, prayers of confession. And so Augustine describes his own conversion experience even in the form of these prayers. And 
In one of the instances, he's describing a friend dying and losing this friend, and he describes how he mourned too much. And by his own estimation, I don't know whether he was right or wrong, I don't know how he really felt about this friendship, but he says, my sorrow showed me that I had prized this person too much. Now, is it appropriate to grieve? You bet. Might it be possible that something becomes overly devastating to us because we've elevated that person to a level that they shouldn't have been at? Yes. As we go through each week, next week we'll talk about fear. The week after that, Adam will talk about anger. And then we'll talk about joy. And then we'll talk about sadness. We'll talk about each of the triggers and scripts that are involved with each of these emotions and how the Spirit might work with them. But when you experience something like that, you might trace your emotion backward and say, God, is this overly devastating because I've overly invested care into this? Or maybe it's the other way around. Maybe like something terrible happened. You're like, well, I'm fine. I don't care. That's all right. I didn't need that friend anyway. Who cares? You're like, you know, you might want to think about, you know, trace that lack of emotion backward, right? Okay. Emotion, secondly, how can emotions be a pathway to spiritual formation? Emotions must also be appropriately directed. They've got to be aimed at the right thing. Okay. Sociologists tell us there's a difference between a mood and an emotion. You might wake up tomorrow morning in a foul mood for who knows why. But it's not until you get on I-25 and somebody cuts you off that now you have a full-fledged emotion. Because now you have someone to aim that emotion at. You're like, that driver. And so a mood can grow up to be an emotion once it gains an object. Okay? That's how emotions work. So moods are not automatically problematic. Moods, moods, whatever. But when they haven't, when they're aimed at something, maybe the wrong thing, that's one of the ways the Holy Spirit can say, "Are, are you focusing on the right detail of the story? Have you ever had an experience where you feel an emotion and you can't get out of the loop of that emotion and all you can see is the detail of that story? And they're like, well, did you, did you catch that? They said da 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 And I mean, did you, did you hear that? Did you hear what they said? And the other person's like, dude, the story was about this? And they're like, yes, but they said this. And they're like, there's a bigger... And, and you're just fixated on the one thing. Actually, this is part of how God has designed our emotions to work. Scientists call this a refractory state. Our emotions put us in a refractory where all we can see is this one thing that confirms the emotion so we can kind of get caught in a loop. But think about why that's a good thing. Let's say, Mike, you're taking a hike in the woods and all of a sudden you see a bear. In that moment, you rightly feel fear. And you're like, okay, maybe you do. I'm going to assume that you do, Mike, okay? And, and you're saying, I, I got to get out of here. Now, it would be terribly unhelpful if God made us in such a way that your fear was there, but you would actually, you're like distracted. You're like, bear, oh, but look at this flower. And what a lovely sunny day. No, your brain goes, bear, 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 get out of here, right? It's supposed to work that way. But, but sometimes when we get in a loop, the way out of it is to say, the practice is, begin to change your feelings by changing your focus. Begin to change your, by beginning to say, wait a minute, what else is going on here? How, how, how might this be different than what I first thought? Say, is there a story in the Gospels like this? 
Maybe when the disciples are on that fishing boat and the storm blows up, right? And Jesus is asleep. And it says, and when the disciples saw the waves crashing and they saw the water rising, it says, and they were terrified. And then they kind of got angry. You know, that's the other thing about emotions is there's kind of this cocktail swirl of emotions where it may start with one emotion like fear, but it quickly leads to anger. I'll give you an everyday, not an everyday, uh, just a normal example from our own ha- household because um, my wife came to the earlier service. Um, <laughs> I don't know if you've ever had the experience where you're trying to call your wife and you, for you, it's a matter of importance, but but. Sh- for her, the phone is on silent and in her purse. That probably doesn't happen to you guys. And so after a while, you're like, okay, this is just, now I'm, now I'm just a little concerned. Okay, maybe, is everything okay? You know, the weather, the drive, you know. And so maybe initially it's concerned, then it kind of blows up into fear. Like, is everything okay? Why is she not answering, you know? Um, and, and then fear slides into anger. <laughs> and then you're like, I don't even know why we pay a phone bill for that phone. <laughs> Hypothetically here. I mean, I know know you guys. (laughs) This is the stuff, right? So the disciples are the same way. They're like, the storm! And then their fear leads to anger. He doesn't even care that we're going to (laughs) die. And Jesus is like, there's one detail of the story y'all are missing. I'm the one who made the the seas. I'm the one who can walk on it. And Jesus is like, you see this, I want you to see this. So when you find yourself in a loop of emotion that you can't, how might the Holy Spirit invite you to change your focus? Not in a weird mind over matter, but but in a healthier, how might the Holy Spirit frame your perspective? Psalm 73, by the way, is all about this. Psalm 73, the psalmist starts out by saying, you know what, I'll tell you what's wrong with the world. All the bad people in the world prosper and all the good people in the world suffer. This is terrible, God. And then halfway through he says, and then I entered into the sanctuary. And then I began to see the end of all things. In other words, I began to zoom out and get a different perspective. And the perspective changed my perception. And if emotions are a kind of perception, remember we said that, then perspective is how we change it. Change your feelings by changing your focus, by inviting the Holy Spirit to help you change your focus. Some dear friends of ours over the last couple of years, we've seen them walk through this in a very personal way. Um, We've been friends with them for a a while. We were partly involved in them sort of meeting and starting to date. Uh, I did their premarital counseling. I did their wedding. And it was also part of our journey to be able to to join with them in their sorrow of not being able to get pregnant. And I remember coming over to their house for tea and sitting with them, crying with them, different occasions, many conversations, processing, wow, what do we do with these emotions. There is sorrow in there because of the loss of a dream, maybe the loss of an expectation. There was fear in there because of an uncertain, a threat to their future. What, what does this mean for our future? What does this mean for us? And I watched them kind of walk through this and in a way trace their emotions backwards and to say, okay, are we, are we overly sorrowful because we've invested too much 
hope in this thing of, of, of having a child? This, well, maybe a little bit here and there, but, but, you know, honestly, I think we desire something good. I, I don't think we're over, okay? Sorrow, there's a good sorrow. I watched them wrestle with their focus to say, are we directing our emotions in the right place? Are we aiming them? At the, and to say, you know what? We could fixate on this. We don't want to deny this, but we want to see the big picture of God's faithfulness. And then watch them begin to lift their eyes to see kind of the bigger story in which this story belongs. And I watched them begin to trust God. And what began to happen was something that was a seed in their own heart, the idea of adoption, became full bloom in their lives. And they began to walk out the journey of pursuing adoption. Last fall, we got to walk with them as they, all of the steps began to happen in the finalization. And then on Friday of this weekend, we, along with several others, got to sit in a courtroom and listen to a judge make that stunning gospel-like declaration that this child was theirs. And this morning in the 9 a.m. service, we got to dedicate their little Jackson Scott Pedersen to the Lord. That's beautiful. And I'm not telling you this story to say, look, every story will work. I'm telling you this to say this is a very real way of how we can invite the Holy Spirit to work through our emotions, to help us trace it backwards, to reorder our hearts, to reorient our perspective so that we can become fully human and in the image of God. See, spiritual formation does not ignore your emotions. It's not an escape from your experience. It's not, it's not a way of saying, oh, God's up here and he doesn't really care about your tears and you just get over it and get on with it. That's not the voice of the Holy Spirit. The voice of the Holy Spirit is to say, where are the tears? Where is the pain? Let's go deeper. How can I heal? How can I reorder your heart? How can I remake you? so that you emerge from this more fully human than before. So how does that happen? Well, we'll spend the next five weeks talking about this. But today, I'll tell you where it begins. It begins with coming to Jesus. It begins with saying, Jesus, the first and central place for the affections of my heart is you. And you become the orienting center that once we get the center correct, everything begins to follow in orbit around it correctly. Everything begins to align. This is why Jesus said the greatest commandment, this is the message paraphrase of it, is love the Lord your God with all your passion and prayer and intelligence. This is the most important, the first on any list, but there is a second to set alongside it. Love others as well as you love yourself. The whole of the Christian life is about loving God and loving others well. This is the whole invitation you're invited into. It's all, it's not, on the one hand, it's not that complicated, but it will be the journey of the rest of your life. And it is the work of the Holy Spirit that says, okay, I will reshape your heart so that you will love the Lord well and centrally and let everything else, your love for others, begin to fit around it. We cannot become this functional family of God without loving the Lord our God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength. It just doesn't work. You can't take away tips and tools and hope to manage your relationships. No, no, it doesn't work like that. 
The kind of overhaul that needs to take place is the, only, is the kind that only happens when we come to Jesus first. St. Augustine said it this way, You move us to delight in praising you, for you have formed us for yourself, and our hearts are restless till they find rest in you. All of our other relationships will be full of striving and struggle because I'm trying to make this right and I'm trying to manipulate and I'm trying to use this and I'm trying to advance this with techniques. And t- No, 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 no. Start here. Start by laying your heart before Christ, saying, Jesus, help me to love you with all of my passion and prayer and intelligence, with heart and soul and mind and strength. And then, Holy Spirit, begin the long work of making everything else flourish and come together. Amen?